Uh, let's uh, move on then to our time of study. We are in the book of Second Peter, Peter's second epistle, and we are moving slower than I originally intended, but there's so much here that I feel it's it's not right that we skip over these things. Um, so let's uh, let me share the screen and then we will just pray one more time and then we'll get into this meat this morning as we uh, allow the Lord just to minister to us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, thank you that we can study your word in freedom. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us clearly through your Holy Spirit when, Lord, we would just put aside those uh, natural inclinations to to chase after the things that the world would try to fill our hearts and our minds with. Lord, we recognize that those things don't profit. Um, Lord, the things of this world, Lord, can't bring the blessing that can be found in you. Lord, each one of us is uh, naturally seeking and searching uh, Lord, we want to have lives that are fulfilled, that are satisfied. But Lord, we recognize that can only come through you. And Lord, it can only come through your word. Uh, Lord, your word brings that spiritual nourishment that our bodies and our hearts, our souls, our minds need. Um, so Lord, as we study now, speak to us, we pray. Um, Lord, challenge any preconceived ideas that are not in accord with your word. Um, just fill us now afresh with your spirit and give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. Picking up from where we left off last time in chapter one, still of Second Peter, and we're going to be looking at verse 16 to 18. So just a couple of verses, or just three verses uh, this morning. Peter has been exhorting us to live a godly life. That, that's what we've seen so far. If you remember last week, we were looking uh, at this uh, building uh, that Peter does, starting with the faith, in a sense, the foundation for our faith. And we're going to be talking about that again in a moment. Um, but to that we're to add virtue, that moral excellence. Uh, and then we add to that the knowledge, which can only come through God's word. Not This isn't just an academic uh, acquiring information. This is a knowledge of godly things. And then once we have that, we're to add temperance because the knowledge gives the context to the temperance and the why of temperance. Why should we do things the way that the Bible says? Why should we do things, uh, you know, have that moderation and that the understanding of the boundaries God has set in all sorts of things? That, of course, leads to patience. And our understanding of patience comes through all of these things, which in turn leads to godliness, that godlikeness, which is, is, is something that the world will see. And then, of course, the brotherly kindness, um, that it goes beyond something that can be naturally uh, accomplished, that could be naturally uh, engineered. You know, we're, we're a, a mixed bunch of people, aren't we? We've come from different backgrounds, different situations, different circumstances. And God has brought us all together in one, in a family. But, you know, even in a family, we've got different people of different characters. You know what it's like, you know, that the, every child is so different from every other child in a family. Uh, we're all unique in the way we are. And of course, it's that way in the body of Christ. But we're to show that brotherly kindness. And then the whole thing which sits with that capstone on the top of love. So that's the teaching we went through last week again and just review that and encourage you to go over that again. But what we saw as well is that they won't just happen. The things that we were talking about last week, it has to take diligence. This is what Peter tells us. Give all diligence. And we said last time that's that careful and persistent work or effort. David Guzik put it this way. He said, give all diligence. And he said, these beautiful qualities are not things that the Lord simply pours into us as we passively receive. Instead, we are called to give all diligence to these things, working in partnership with God to add them. Again, we said last time, uh, Peter makes it clear that he knew his end was approaching. 
Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4.9 that all the apostles were appointed to death, that God was going to use them in a very unique and special way uh, as witnesses uh, to, to, by their lives, testify of the reality of the faith they had and of their confidence in God and his ability to save, and that this life was not all there is. It's not just about now, this three score and ten that we're living. And so he wanted to sow into their lives things that they would not forget when he'd gone. And we ended last time by talking about the legacy that each one of us will leave. What are we leaving for others? If we are to to go and be with the Lord before the time of the rapture, what legacy do we leave for the next generation? What legacy are we leaving for our children when they look at us? Are they prompted? Are they, they, they urged to become more godly by our lifestyles? Those around us, are we witnessing by the way we live our lives as much as by the words we say? Well, again, Peter's exhortation is continuing now because he's going to return to that bedrock uh, and seek to strengthen that foundation. Now, Psalm 11 verse 3 says this, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? In verse 4 of chapter 5 of First John, it says this, for whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So there we have it very clear that faith is this bedrock, in a sense, that we're building on. It's what we saw in our study last week, that we start with that faith and build on that. And um, Peter's now going to exhort us, encourage us to, in a sense, have a real framework for our faith. Faith is not this blind leap in the dark. A man by the name of H.L. McKenna naively said this. He said, faith may be defined as an illogical belief in the incurrence of the improbable. Okay, So that was his take on what faith is. But probably a more accurate description of faith is encapsulated in the words of Dr. George Eldon Ladd. He said this, faith does not mean a leap in the dark, an irrational credulity, a believing against evidences and against reason. It means believing in the light of historical facts consistent with the evidences on the basis of witnesses. I love that. That's a great definition of faith. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's not something that's irrational. You know, we we talk about faith in terms of belief, but we all exercise faith all the time. And that faith we exercise is based upon empirical evidence. When you sit on a chair, typically you're exercising faith that the people that made that chair made it well and it's not going to collapse as you sit on it. When you drive down the road, you exercise faith that a piece of paint in the middle of the road is going to stop an oncoming driver veering across your side of the road. That, that's faith. It's based upon the evidence. It's based upon the information we have, but it's still exercising faith. And of course, when it comes to our faith in that which the Bible says, it isn't just an irrational uh, hoping it might be true. It's based upon the evidence or it should be for us as believers. Some of you have seen the film uh, God's Not Dead 2. Um, there's a quote that comes from uh, this individual, Jay Warner Wallace, and it's included in the film. He says, I'm not a Christian today because I was raised that way or because it satisfies some need or accomplishes some goal. I am simply a Christian because it's evidentially true. 
Now, this is a great way of witnessing to other people because so many people have been told that the Bible is not true, that God doesn't exist. And actually, to be confronted with this idea that this is true, that this is real, that we have evidence, that we can back it up and we can support it, will come as a surprise to many. Many years ago, uh, I had an opportunity to come down to Portsmouth. This is when I still lived down in Kent. Uh, and there was a conference that had been put on by Ron Matson, the previous pastor here, called FACT. And in fact, I missed the first year of the conference, or I think actually there been two years. But my, my parents said to me, look, this is really good. We went last year. You should come with us. I came down. And I remember sitting and listening to a man called Dave Hunt. Uh, at that time, I'd not heard of, of Dave. Uh, many of you will be familiar with Dave Hunt and his work and his ministry. And I remember within the first minute or two of him speaking, him kind of pounding the podium uh, and saying, you know, we can prove the Bible is true. We can prove that Jesus Christ is the only savior of sinners. And my heart just cried out because I'd been a Christian for many years by that point. But nobody told me we could prove it. Nobody told me that it really was historically verifiable and accurate. I thought it was just a, I believed it and I knew it and I, I, I believed in God and I experienced God. I was born again. But to realize that this really was something that was intellectually sound was a bit of a light bulb moment. And this is hopefully something that we're going to try and look at a little bit this morning, because when we go to our verse, we're going to start on this morning from Second Peter. Peter says this, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now we're going to make camp here for a little while this morning. Uh, we're only going to get through three verses, but uh, let's look at the first part. Peter says we haven't followed cunningly devised fables. Now the word that we have translated cunningly devised is the Greek word uh, sophiso, uh, which is where we get sophisticated from. So another way of Peter saying what he's saying is, you know, he, we've not followed sophisticated lies or fanciful truths that have been you know, cleverly put together. That's the idea. You know, what Peter's saying is we didn't make this stuff up. And Peter was in a great position to say this because he'd been there pretty much from the start of Jesus's ministry. He'd, he'd lived, he traveled with Jesus through that time of ministry. He'd seen all these things take place. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he took a sword and chopped off the high priest servant's ear. And Jesus picked up that ear and put it back onto that man's head with no ill effects whatsoever. Peter was there on the day, the morning of the resurrection. Peter went into that empty tomb, and then in the evening, Peter saw the resurrected Jesus. You know, these so many things we could talk about from Peter's own experience. And he writes and says this now, that we haven't followed these sophisticated lies. We haven't followed cunningly devised fables. Now, notice what he says. He says, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this power that he's speaking about is the power that he'd seen of Jesus to perform miracles. I mean, the walking on the water bit, where Peter steps out of the boat. Peter knew this firsthand. He'd walked on that water, and it was only when he took his eyes off Jesus that he began to sink. But he saw this incredible miracle take place. The power to raise the dead. I mean, Peter had been there when Lazarus had been raised. You know, and, and, and Dorcas and these other individuals that Jesus raised from the dead. Peter had been there. He was one of the, the, the small group that got to see firsthand these things take place. Of course, the power 
to be raised from the dead, that Jesus himself was resurrected, Peter first-hand witness, the power to save and the power to change lives. Peter knew all of these things firsthand. He said, you know, we didn't make this stuff when we made known to you the power just incredible power that is beyond anything that this world can comprehend or understand. Just the miracles that took place, which of course the world would ridicule and say, well, that can't happen. Well, my question is, were you there? Because we have an eyewitness who was there and he said it did happen. He's recorded these things for us. The second part of this is the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. So it wasn't just that Peter had made known all that Jesus had done, but it was also of the coming, the, the, the prophetic hope that Peter had, that Jesus had said that he would return just as sure as Peter was of those other things. We've mentioned the miracles and so on. Peter was just as sure that Jesus is returning. And he's going to be returning for his church. Peter was there in the upper room when Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I shall come again and receive you unto myself. The where I am, there you may be also. Peter was there. He heard Jesus say it. He had absolutely no reason to doubt. You see, just as the things that Peter saw and experienced were true, so will be Jesus' return. And Jesus had told the disciples personally that he was going to return and not one thing that Jesus had said had proven to be untrue. So Peter had absolutely no doubt that Jesus is coming back. And this is what he told those around him. This is when his letters, what he's been communicating. Peter speaks uh, a number of times about the return of Jesus and how we should be ready and how we should be living our lives in the light of that. Now, notice what he says as well, that he makes a statement that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, the testimony of an eyewitness is powerful. In any court situation, if you can get an eyewitness to an event, that testimony is very powerful indeed. Uh, David Guzik makes this comment. He, he's just picking up on the, the word that's translated fables. He said, uh, fables translates the ancient Greek word mythos. Some people think that the gospel and the biblical record are just ancient myths. They may admire their power as myths, but Peter rightly insisted that his message was no myth. It was history seen by eyewitnesses. Now, you can't write a letter like Peter writes. You can't make the assertion that these things were true, that I was there, and have it circulated and have it accepted by people and read by people and passed on to others if the whole thing was just a made-up story. It would have never uh, taken hold. People would have easily debunked it, not least the Jewish authorities who would love to have disproven everything that the disciples were saying about Jesus. But Peter writes as an eyewitness of these things. If we look at the beginning of the book of Acts, this was written by Dr. Luke. Uh, he says this, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, uh, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, that's his death, resurrection, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This character Theophilus is very interesting. We'll look in detail at some point in the future about him. Uh, he was a uh, very senior um, uh, Jewish leader and uh, seemingly had been uh, um, the, one of the, the high priests following on from Annas and Caiaphas and so on. We'll look at that at some point. So P P uh, uh, Luke is writing 
to this individual that clearly was well-versed, was a, a learned individual. And he makes this statement that the disciples had seen Jesus, Jesus shown himself alive by many infallible proofs. Luke doesn't just say, you know, they, they really believed it was the case. No, he says, look, there were proofs. This was evidence. There was no question of the reality of the things that the disciples, the apostles went on to proclaim and record. Again, be seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In the the next uh, few verses, uh, we go a little bit further on in the book of Acts chapter one. It says, wherefore of these men, this is when they're looking to replace Judas. It says of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us. So the requirement for someone who was going to replace Judas was that they had to have been there from the beginning. They had to have seen all the things that had taken place. And verse 22 says, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So the requirement for the replacement for Judas was they had to be an eyewitness of everything that had gone on. Even in the upper room, it wasn't just the disciples on that evening of the resurrection. There were others that were gathered together with them, including Matthias, who, of course, later becomes the replacement to Judas. So, the, again, the qualification was you had to be an eyewitness. This wasn't just a, yeah, I heard something about this. And yeah, I think it's probably true. No, these were people that have been there, that had seen it. Again, not just the, the resurrection, but everything through Jesus' ministry. In 1 John 1, verse 1, John there gives us his testimony. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. That's pretty powerful. I mean, John is saying that we've seen this. We we, we physically touched Jesus. We, we know this is all true. And we've seen him, that he was resurrected and so on. So, again, John just making it clear again that he was an eyewitness of these things. It is empirical evidence. In Luke 24, we read verse 39 onwards. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones, interesting statement flesh and bones as you see me have and when he had thus spoken he showed them his hands and his feet and while they yet believed not for joy and wondered he said unto them have you here any meat and they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of a honeycomb and he took it and did eat before them so this is on the evening of the resurrection as jesus appears in that uh, room with the disciples and they initially they, they think it's a ghost they don't know what they're looking at but jesus just calms and says look you know I'm real. Touch me. Physically see that I'm alive. Uh, and again, then he sits down. He has his meal with them. Notice, though, that Jesus doesn't just say, hey, guys, take it on faith. You know, he gives them this opportunity to prove the reality of the situation, that this wasn't just some sort of hallucination or this wasn't some other random event that occurred. This was literally a, a body in the room with them, a being in the room that was Jesus. And they recognized him very clearly again eyewitnesses of all of these events and jesus didn't want them just to take it on faith as the world would tend to think now david guzik uh, also makes this statement he says we can reliably reconstruct historical events from the testimony of eyewitnesses who must be checked for truthfulness the apostles and the writers of the new testament have been checked for centuries and have been found truthful you know, there have been countless people that have tried to 
undo or undermine that which the Bible says. Try to say that it's not true, that it was made up. They've all failed. The fact is that to this day, there is more evidence now than at any time through history that we've accumulated and we've put together to show that these events weren't just some fanciful story or cunningly devised fables, as Peter puts it, that these were real historical events that have been recorded accurately in the pages of the Bible. So William Ramsey uh, is regarded as one of the greatest archaeologists who have ever lived. And he was a student of that German school of higher criticism in the mid 19th century. He had no desire to prove the authenticity of the Bible as such. As a result, he believed that the book of Acts, particularly Luke's writings, were a product of the mid second century AD. So he didn't believe it was written in the early years after the events that they record. And he was firmly convinced in his belief of those things. But he started researching uh, and he wanted to make a, a topographical study of Asia Minor or the area we today refer to as Turkey. Um, so he was compelled to look at the things that Luke had written down, particularly in the book of Acts. As a result, he was forced to do a complete U-turn, a reversal of his beliefs due to the overwhelming evidence that was uncovered in his research. Now, he said this when he commented, he said, I may fairly claim to have entered on this investigation without prejudice in favour of the conclusion which I shall now seek to justify to the reader. On the contrary, I began with a mind unfavourable to it. In other words, he set out to try and, in a sense, disprove it. But then he says this, it was gradually borne upon me that in various details, the narrative showed marvellous truth. Concerning Luke's ability as a historian, Ramsey concludes after 30 years of study, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Now that's somebody who is recognised in his field, who did diligent study and research, and the conclusion he reached was, you know what, the Bible is absolutely correct. The writings that Luke penned for us, they are absolutely correct in terms of the history they record, the locations, the details, all of that. Ramsey adds, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its truthfulness. And that's taken, by the way, from Evidence of Demars' Verdict by Josh McDowell, which is a a fantastic resource. Um, Let me just read this, uh, building on that. After trying to shatter the historicity and validity of the scripture, I came to the conclusion that it is historically trustworthy. If one discards the Bible as being unreliable, then he must discard almost all literature of antiquity. So anything else is written historically, way back, we'd have to get rid of the whole lot. If we discard the Bible... He says this, one problem I constantly face is the desire on the part of many to apply one standard or test to secular literature and another to the Bible. One needs to apply the same test, whether the literature under investigation is secular or religious. Having done this, I believe one can hold the scriptures in his hand and say the Bible is trustworthy and historically reliable. That's um, again a quote from Josh McDowell from Evidence Demands a Verdict. Now, the, the chart, the thing you can see on the screen there, just shows the center dot indicates when the events in question happened. The further out from that center that you get, the center dot in the screen, the little black dot in the middle, the further out you get is when the writings or the earliest copies of the things that were written date to. 
So if you take, for example, the writings of Plato, the one right in the centre at the top, we've only got seven copies of his work, and it dates to round about 1,400 years after the original work was penned. All right, so some of the others you've got there, the one right in the centre at the bottom, uh, Pliny, uh, again, his writings, there's only seven copies in existence, uh, and it's 750 years after the events. If you take the one that's uh, to the uh, three o'clock position, as it were, you can see the larger um, uh, yellow circle there with Homer next to it. Um, again, the, um, the Greek uh, historian. We have 643 copies of the things he wrote, but the earliest copy dates to 500 years after it was written. Now, that's what the world has. And most of those things the world will accept unreservedly as being accurate accounts of those things that were written. They don't accept or they don't believe they were doctored or amended in any way that they are the original things uh, and so on. Now, when you come to the New Testament, you can see the staggering, overwhelming amount of manuscript evidence that we have to support that which is written firstly it's got a date there of 40 to 70 years in actual fact from what we know and uh, i would even challenge that statement because uh, bill cooper and his work proves pretty conclusively that everything we have in the bible including the book of revelation was written before ad 70 that means within 32 years of the events, everything we have in the Bible was written. And we have a staggering 24,000 manuscript copies that verify, that support, that back up everything that we have in the Bible. I mean, it's just breathtaking when you look at the amount of information, the, the historical reliability we have for the New Testament. And of course, people don't question these others but they'll call the Bible into question. And yet the amount of documentary evidence we have is just off the chart compared to these others. Sir Edward Clark uh, made this comment. Uh, he was a respected lawyer. He said this, as a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. Of course, the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. He said this, to me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence, and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class, and as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. Now, there's a, a number of great books that you can look at. There's a good book by a man by the name of Frank Morrison called Who Moved the Stone?, and he just argues just quite uh, powerfully for the historical basis of the resurrection as being a fact of history, not something that was made up by the disciples. Of course, Peter's telling us that they didn't make this stuff up. There wasn't these cunningly devised fables. I just want to read this to you. History records that two young men, Gilbert West and Lord Littleton, went up to Oxford. They were friends of Dr. Johnson, of dictionary fame, I'm sure you're familiar, uh, and Alexander Pope in the swim of society. Uh, they had no desire to prove Christianity, by the way. They were determined, in fact, to attack the very basis of the Christian faith. So Littleton settled down to prove that, Saint Saul, Saint, that Saul of Tarsus was never converted to Christianity and that West to demonstrate that Jesus never rose from the tomb. So this is what they set out to try and prove. Sometime later, they met to discuss their findings. 
both were a little sheepish, for they had both come to similar and disturbing conclusions. Littleton found, on examination, that Saul of Tarsus did become a radically new man through his conversion to Christianity, and West found that the evidence pointed unmistakably to the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. It's interesting that you find these individuals that have set out to disprove the Bible, these two's case in point, Josh McDowell is another, uh, William Ramsey is another, you know, and effectively looking for the alternate conclusion. And yet they all come down once they look at the evidence and say, no, actually, it's true. The, the, the evidence is overwhelming. Josh McDowell says this, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history. Now, based upon his research, his conclusion, of course, that it is the most fantastic fact of history. He's saying there are your only two conclusions. When you go into the details and look at this, he was asked a question, Professor McDowell, why can't you intellectually refute Christianity? And his answer was this. He says, for a very simple reason, I'm not able to explain away an event in history the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't simply dismiss it. Lord Lyndhurst um, was once uh, recognised as one of the greatest legal minds in uh, British history. He wrote this, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. You see, anybody that is willing to come to this with an open mind and look at the evidence really only can come out of it with one conclusion. See, throughout history, people have gone to extraordinary lengths to silence or obfuscate or deny the resurrection. The Jews threw everything they had at silencing the resurrection of Jesus, of course. The Roman Catholic Church, actually, has bent over backwards to obfuscate this truth. Maybe you're surprised by that statement, but it's historically backed up. Today's atheists, of course, have shouted as loud as they can and all to no avail. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, said this. Nobody knows who the four evangelists were. But they almost certainly never met Jesus personally. Much of what they wrote was in no sense an honest attempt at history. The Gospels are ancient fiction. Well, interestingly, Peter, in the verse that we're looking at this morning, is saying that I was an eyewitness. I was there. I did meet Jesus. And I know these things are true. So somebody's wrong. I want you just to consider the following. Because if Dawkins is correct in his statement... You might be able to imagine, as it were, this following conversation, and you'll see just how preposterous Dawkins' statement is. Imagine this. Luke says, let's have another round of drinks. I have an idea I want to run past you. John says, sure, what's on your mind? Luke replies and says, well, you probably heard about the Nazarene named Jesus who was crucified yesterday. I think he could be the perfect candidate for our fake Messiah project. Mark chimes in and says, uh, one tiny problem, he's dead. Luke comes back and says, yeah, but that means we'll control the narrative. We'll be in charge of his reputation. Matthew said, but who would follow a dead Messiah? Luke says, oh, nobody. So we'll begin with the resurrection myth. We'll hire some thugs to fight off the soldiers guarding his tomb so we can get rid of the corpse. John comes back in and says, but a missing corpse isn't the same as a resurrection. Luke says, yeah, you're right. So we'll have to persuade Jesus's friends to spend the next 30 years telling everyone he's risen from the dead, even if sticking to that story means they'll be imprisoned or killed. Mark says, OK, then what? Luke says, well, to make a conspiracy credible, you need precise details. So we'll invent stories where Jesus interacts with people in specific locations. 
Matthew says, but won't people just disprove the stories by visiting those places and asking around? Luke says, oh, there's no need to worry about that. We can invent the story about a synagogue ruler's terminally ill daughter being healed. Give the synagogue ruler a name, set it all in a particular place, and still no one, absolutely no one, not even the people living in that place, would trouble to fact check. Everyone would simply swallow the story whole. Mark says, well, it sounds like we're on safe ground there. Uh, but if we want people to follow Jesus, he'll need a message. People have been waiting for the Messiah for centuries. He's got to be worth listening to when he finally appears. John then comes back and says, a good point. I'll cook up some deep quotes. Luke then says, oh, thanks, John. Mark's right. You'll need to put profound wisdom on Jesus' lips that theological scholars can happily study for their entire careers. John says, not a problem. And then Luke comes back and says, uh, guys, it will take us a while to put these documents together. We need to get communities of people worshipping Jesus in the meantime, so that when our books come out, they'll get a good reception. Mark says, uh, there's a guy I know called Saul. He could help with that. Luke says, Saul, the Pharisee? I can't imagine him getting involved with this kind of thing. Mark says, trust me, he's our man. I see him leaving behind everything he's been trained to do and planting congregations of Jesus worshippers throughout the Roman Empire. Whatever it costs him personally, beatings, shipwrecks and the like. Matthew says, awesome. But Luke, you just uh, you, you just remind me, what's the point of all this? I mean, what exactly do we get out of this? Well, Luke says, come on, Matt, it'll be so much fun. We'll watch people being brutally martyred and we'll know that they've been deceived by our dishonest fiction. What's not to like about that? John comes back and says, I, I agree with Luke. This is definitely worth years of effort on our part. Count me in. Mark, me too. Matthew, I'll do it if my name comes first in all the promotional material. Luke says, deal, let's get to work. All right, you just get the idea of how preposterous Dawkins' statement really is. And the idea that the Gospels could have been put together just by some random individuals that wanted to invent a story is utterly preposterous. There's another problem, though, that Dawkins and those with him and many antagonists of Scripture don't really want to address and that is the fact that the resurrection and all these details were foretold beforehand in fact over a thousand years before the events take place we have details recorded in the bible of what was going to happen the feast of passover for example it foreshadows christ's sacrificial death in incredible detail this innocent lamb that was taken on the 10th day and killed on the 14th day of the month and so on just as jesus was the feast of unleavened bread obviously speaks of his burial like that corn of wheat falling into the ground and so on the feast of first fruits speaks of his resurrection again paul states that christ is the first fruits to god of those who are destined to rise from the dead all of this written down recorded some 1400 years before the events do you want you just to think for a second, though, that the basis of our faith is, of course, the resurrection. Paul contends that the very basis for the Christian faith is firmly rooted in a historical event that occurred in a garden in Judea some 2000 years ago. And in fact, if that event didn't take place, Paul says we might as well just pack up and go home. There's no point believing this thing because it gives us a warm and fuzzy feeling. It's either true and we could substantiate it, or it's false, and we should just get on with our lives and stop being so silly. That effectively is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says that if you or your sceptic friend want to disprove Christianity, simply show that the resurrection did not take place. Show that it was all a hoax or some elaborate plot. And if you could do that, Christianity is over. 
Uh, in fact, in fact, Paul was so confident in the historical and factual basis of the resurrection and knew that without it, there could be no Christianity because everything we believe hangs on that one event that Paul was willing to give his entire life to proclaiming the truth of this. Josh McDowell said this, everything that Jesus Christ taught, lived and died for depended upon his resurrection. A man by the name of uh, B.L. Shelley uh, wrote a really good book on uh, church history, stated this. He said, First Corinthians fixes belief in the historical resurrection of Jesus as the indispensable basis of salvation. Notice that Peter says that we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. David Guzik again picks up and says, uh, Paul and Peter solemnly declared that the testimony of the apostles, testimony they endured torture and gave their lives for, was not based on clever fables or even half-truths, but on eyewitness testimony, that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Just want you to consider this. All these individuals that spent their lives proclaiming these truths, Stephen, as we know from the book of Acts, was stoned to death, proclaiming these things to be true, proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, that he'd risen from the dead. You don't go through with something like that because it's a hoax, because somebody tried to coax you into it. You go, yeah, this will be fun. James was beheaded for professing that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that he'd risen from the dead. Matthias eventually was tied down and vultures ate him alive from the historical records we have. Jude, or also known as Thaddeus in the, the uh, Gospel accounts, the half-brother of Jesus, was crucified and shot with arrows. Nathaniel, skinned alive and crucified. I mean, at which point during that, if you know this was all a hoax, wouldn't you cry out and say, guys, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, I made it up. Philip, hanged. Andrew, crucified in Egypt. Mark, dragged behind chariots. Matthew, was flayed and then beheaded. I mean, why would you go through that incredible pain and that torture if you knew that you just invented this story? Luke was crucified. James, son of Alphaeus, was thrown from the temple. Thomas, impaled in India. Simon's lotus was sawn in pieces. Peter himself would later be crucified upside down on a cross. Paul, we know, was beheaded in Rome. You know, it's incredible. And it's just totally preposterous to suggest that these individuals knew that this was a hoax and they just put the whole thing together. These were, as Peter tells us, eyewitness accounts. I want you to just consider something else. When it comes to the Talmud, uh, it lists more than a dozen rules for copying the Torah. This is the way the, the Jews recorded and copied the Old Testament. Now, bear in mind, it's the Old Testament where we find so many prophecies that were fulfilled during that gospel period that Peter said he was an eyewitness to. There was this built-in security system for copying of this text that it was passed down. And even if just one of these factors was lacking, it wouldn't possess the sanctity of a, a Torah scroll, and it wasn't to be used for public Torah reading. And so this meticulous process of hand-copying a scroll takes about 2,000 hours. In other words, it's a full-time job for a year. Throughout the centuries, Jewish scribes have adhered to these following guidelines. One, the parchment has got to be made from the skin of a clean animal, ceremonial clean, according to the Old Testament laws. It must be prepared by a Jew only, and the skins must be fastened together by strings taken from clean animals. Each collar must have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. The entire copy must be first lined. A Torah scroll would be disqualified if there was a single letter added. 
Today's Bible translators would do well to take heed. A Torah scroll is disqualified if even a single letter is deleted. Once again, they should take note of that. A scribe must be a learned, pious Jew who has undergone special training and certification. All materials, parchment, ink and quill, must conform to strict specific uh, specifications rather, and be prepared specifically for the purpose of writing a Torah scroll. The scribe may not write even one letter into the scroll from memory. Rather, he must have a second kosher scroll open before him at all times. Every single letter you have to check before you write it. The scribe must pronounce every word out loud before copying it from the text. Every letter must have sufficient white space around it. If one letter touched another in any spot, it invalidates the entire scroll that you've been spending your whole year writing out. So you want to make sure you do this properly. If a single letter was so marred that it can't be read at all or resembles another letter... Uh, whether the defect is in the writing or due to a hole or a tear or a smudge, again, it would invalidate the whole scroll. Each letter must be sufficiently legible that even an ordinary school child could distinguish it from another or other similar letters. And the scribe must put precise space between the words so that one word would not like two words or two words look like one word and so on. The scribe must not alter the design of the sections and must conform to the particular line lengths and paragraph configurations. The ink must be of no other colour than black, and it must be prepared according to a special recipe. He must reverently wipe his pen each time before writing the word for God. Now, some portions of the Torah, God's name occurs a lot. That's Elohim. He must wash his whole body before writing the name Jehovah. So these individuals were very, very hygienic, very clean. Every time they had to write Jehovah or Lord, as it appears in the King James, capital O, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in the, the Hebrew, that's the name Jehovah or Yahweh. Every time before writing that, you have to go and wash your entire body. Uh, again, lest the holy name be contaminated is what the rules said. Each Hebrew letter has numerical values and each column when completed would have to be added up to make sure that everything added up and it matched the scroll that you are copying from. Every page would also have to add up numerically. And this revision uh, to correct any errors or a roll must be made within 30 days after the work was finished. Otherwise, it was worthless. One mistake on a sheet condemned the entire sheet. If three mistakes were found on any page, the entire manuscript was condemned. Again, critics' favourite challenge to all of these things is this. You can't trust the Bible. It's been changed so many times. How many times have you heard somebody say that to you? I've heard it countless times. People say, oh, the Bible's been changed. Well, there's 304,805 letters in the Torah. How many errors do you think have occurred in 1900 years? Okay, since the time of Jesus to, to, to now, how many letters, how many errors do you think have occurred? Well, the fact is, this is going to uh, Rabbi Eish Haltorah, he says this. The fact is that after all the trials and tribulations, communal dislocations and persecutions, only the Yemenite Torah scrolls contain any difference from the rest of the world Jewry. For hundreds of years, the Yemenite community was not part of the global global checking system, and a total of nine letter differences are found in their scrolls. Did you get that? Just nine letters out of over 300,000 that were different, and all of those were just spelling differences. In no case did they change the meaning of the word. People that say the Bible has been changed or altered over time do not know what they are talking about. There are so many things, and we haven't got the time to go through this morning. But there are apologetic arguments that we can present, the logical reasons for the faith that we have. There's historical arguments that have been verified and supported. There's scientific arguments where there's statements scientifically in the Bible that can be 
absolutely demonstrated to be true from a scientific basis. Things that we've only recently discovered that the Bible declared centuries ago. Mathematically, there's a whole well we could spend weeks just looking at the mathematical design and structure behind the text and so on provable certainties from a geographical perspective everything is where the bible says it should be it's in the locations although critics have challenged that that place didn't exist or this place Nineveh apparently didn't exist until it was found Jericho didn't exist in the location the bible said until it was found and so many other things biological things that we have in the bible that have been verified by medical science today from an astronomical perspective, the Bible speaks a lot about different things to do with space. And we know that it's cosmologically correct. These things have been verified and proven. From an archaeological perspective, there are libraries full of the work and the research and the discoveries that have been found all authenticating that which the Bible says. Of course, the Bible is full of internal proof that we could spend weeks just going through. And we've looked at some of these things in the past. And then there is, if you like, what I refer to as the greatest mystery. We did a study on this a little while back, the Jubilee phenomena that goes, spans the history of time. Just breathtaking detail that have been, that has been foretold, revealed in scripture and is happening, uh, in our, or in the, it has happened throughout the history of the world and is still taking place today. So many things we can point to as evidence. But really, I mean, can we put the Bible to the test? Is it possible to prove its accuracy and reliability? Well, I just want to, as we draw to a close, just read a couple of testimonies of people who are world-renowned scholars who did just that. They put the Bible to the test and their conclusions provide a very powerful rebuttal to anyone who would claim the Bible is a myth or a fable or a cunningly devised uh, fable and so on. First one, uh, just a draw uh, to the stand, as it were, is uh, this man by the name of Robert Dick Wilson. He wrote this book, A Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament. Now, he could read and write 45 ancient Semitic languages. Until you find me a critic that is at least that capable, I'm not interested in what they've got to say. At 25 years old, he could read the New Testament in nine languages. He'd memorize the New Testament from Matthew through to Revelation. Staggering. And also many of the Old Testament books memorized in Hebrew. And this is a statement. This absolute. And we talk about experts. This man really was an expert. And he says this for 45 years continuously. I devoted myself to one great study of the Old Testament in all of its languages, in all of its archaeology, in all of its translations. The critics of the Bible who go to it in order to find fault claim to themselves all knowledge, all virtue, all love of the truth. One of their favorite phrases is all scholars agree. Well, when a man says that, I wish to know who the scholars are and what they agree on. Where do they get their evidence? I defy any man to make attack on the Old Testament on the ground of evidence that I cannot investigate. After I learned the necessary languages, I set about the investigation of every single consonant in the Hebrew Old Testament. There are about 1,250,000 of them. It took me many years to achieve my task. I had to observe variations in the text, in the manuscripts, notes of the Masorites in all their various versions, parallel passages and contextual emendations of critics. And then I had to classify the results of every character, every consonant, to reduce the Old Testament criticism to an absolutely objective science, something that is based on evidence and not opinion. He says this, The result of those 45 years of study which I have given to the text has been this. I can affirm that there is not a page of the Old Testament concerning which you need have any doubt 
Now, building on that, he goes on and says this. For example, to illustrate his accuracy, there are 29 ancient kings whose names are mentioned not only in the Bible, but also on monuments we've uncovered of their own time. There are 195 consonants in those 29 proper names. Yet we find that in the documents of the Hebrew Old Testament, there are only two consonants out of the 195 that have ever been called into question. In these lists of kings that we have, only two consonants have ever been questioned. You'll be aware there's no vowels in the Hebrew text. The names are all in exactly the same way as they've been inscribed on their monuments, which archaeologists have dated and discovered. Some of these go back 4,000 years. Compare this accuracy with the greatest scholar of his age, the librarian at Alexandria in Egypt in 200 BC. He compiled a catalogue of the kings of Egypt, 38 in all. Of the entire number, only three or four were recognisable. Right? So out of 38 kings, the Bible deals with more than that, but out of 38 kings, there's only four that you could recognise from this list. He also made a list of the kings of Assyria. In only one case can we tell who he's talking about, and that one's not spelt correctly. Or take Ptolemy, who drew up a register of 18 kings of Babylon. Not one of them is properly spelt. You could not make them out at all if you did not know some of the outside sources. I mean, this is incredible. This is what the secular work is like. If anyone talks about the Bible, ask him about the kings mentioned in it. There are 29 kings referred to, 10 different countries among these 29, all of which are included in the Bible and on the monuments that we've discovered archaeologically. Every one of these is given their right name in the Bible, their right country, their right place, in correct chronological order. And he says, think what this means. This is undeniable evidence that the Bible is an accurate historical book and it makes the likes of Dawkins and these other detractors look utterly foolish. One other, very quickly, Bill Cooper, president of uh, Creation Science Movement, based down here in Portsmouth. Um, but he's also an adjunct professor of the Master Faculty at the Institute for Creation Re- Research uh, School of Biblical Apologetics. Uh, Bill has done work for uh, the British Library and others, uh, and he's done some incredible groundbreaking research. Now, in this book, After the Flood, which a number of you have got, he traces the kings and queens of England all the way back to Noah showing that there is a historical path that can be verified, historically showing all these things are accurate as recorded in the Bible. And he says this, It is commonly thought in this present age that nothing is worthy of our belief unless first it can be scientifically demonstrated and observed to be true. It was assumed without further inquiry that nothing, and especially the earlier portions of the biblical record, could be demonstrated to be true and factual. This applied particularly to the book of Genesis. In other words, we were solemnly assured in the light of modern wisdom that historically speaking, the book of Genesis was not simply worth the paper it was written on. On the one hand, I had the Bible itself claiming to be the very word of God. And on the other, I was presented with numerous commentaries that spoke with one voice in telling me that the Bible was nothing of the kind. It was merely a hodgepodge collection of Middle Eastern myths and fables that sought to explain the world in primitive terms. Now, it simply was not possible for both these claims to be valid one of them, only one of them, could be right. So it was that I decided to select a certain portion of Genesis and submit it to a test which, if applied to any ordinary historical document, would be considered a test of the most unreasonable severity. And I would continue that test until either the book of Genesis revealed itself to be a false account, or it would be shown to be utterly reliable in its historical statements. What I had not expected at the time was that the fact that the task was to engage my attention and energies for more than 25 years. The test I devised was a simple one. 
If the names of the individuals, families, peoples and tribes listed in the table of nations, as Genesis 10 and 11, were genuine, then those same names should appear also in the records of other nations in the Middle East. It's a reasonable test. It was simply not realistic to expect that every name would have been recorded in the annals of ancient Middle East and would have survived to the present day. I therefore would have been content to have found, say, 40% of the list vindicated. In fact, that would have been a very high achievement given the sheer antiquity of the Table of Nations itself and the reported scarcity of the surviving extra-biblical records from those ancient texts. So again, starting with the Bible, looking at what's listed and seeing if we can find other sources to verify and prove that which the Bible said to be true or false. He said this, but when over my 25 years of research, that confirmatory evidence grew past 40% to 50% and then 60% and beyond, it soon became apparent that modern wisdom in this matter was wide of the mark, very wide of the mark indeed. Today, I can say that the names so far vindicated in the table of nations make up over 99% of the list. And I shall make no further comment on that other than to say that no other ancient historical document of purely human authorship could be expected to yield such a level of corroboration as that so there you have two scholars robert wilson bill cooper incredible research over a long period of time absolute proof positive that that which we have in the bible is historically accurate you may be familiar with this quote. It comes from a Casting Crown song. Uh, the Bible was inscribed over a period of 2000 years in times of war, and in days of peace by kings, physicians, tax collectors, farmers, fishermen, singers and shepherds. The marvel is that a library so perfectly cohesive could have been produced by such a diverse crowd over a period of time, which staggers the imagination. Peter says we've not followed cunning device fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what I witness witnesses of his majesty and he goes on and just says his last two verses for he received from god the father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased you see peter alludes here to that situation on the mount of transfiguration where he heard god's voice notice what we're told here he's got no doubt that the voice he heard was from god and this voice he heard was confirming who Jesus really was. Of course, Jesus humbled himself, became of no reputation. He took the lowest seat at the table, effectively, to come to this earth, being born as a baby. But now, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory is just clearly evident. And now God exalts him. And as we know, God has given him a name that's above every other name. Verse 18. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount peter saying i was there i heard this this is not made up stuff the holy mount by the way probably mount hermon in northern israel it's near caesarea philippi just after this event they go down to caesarea philippi and the question is asked jesus says to peter whom do you say i am and that's that big question that all of us have got to answer the evidence is overwhelming of course moses and elijah appear with jesus and they discuss what's going to happen in jerusalem his death his resurrection it would also seem that they were called to be eyewitnesses themselves moses and elijah of the resurrection they seemed we seem to see them again at the tomb and the ascension and i think we see them again in the book of revelation chapter 11 this is another side study there mount Hermon, just for your information is up there where, roughly where the arrow is pointing right at the top of israel that's a picture of the mountain and obviously in uh, part of the year it gets covered with snow at the top of it um 
I just want to read this in closing. This is from Oswald Chambers because I just want to end on a kind of a spiritual note rather than just lots of information and facts and proof and evidence. Oswald Chambers says this in regard to the whole transfiguration thing. He says, according to the revelation of the Bible, our Lord is not to be looked upon as an individual man, but as the one who represents the whole human race. At his baptism, our Lord accepted his vocation as sin bearer. The Holy Ghost descended upon him as son of man and the voice of God came with the divine approval. And at the transfiguration, the voice of God came again. The baptism and the transfiguration reveal who our Lord is. And the secret of the Christian is that he knows the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. I believe this is what Peter is really alluding to. I think this is partly why Peter makes reference to this event as he's recording it here for us. Oswald Chambers carries on and says, The transfiguration occurs practically in the centre of our Lord's earthly ministry. The fulfilment of the transfiguration is the ascension. These two mountain peaks, without the cross and the resurrection, would portray the development of human life had there been no sin. The cross and the resurrection deal with sin and the need of redemption. There's a chart which I'll leave there. It's interesting to study and look at the pattern and the plan and so on that God has here in terms of Jesus' life. And the symmetry uh, we see uh, between the two. And this is from Oswald Chambers. But I just want to read this last quote from him. He says, It was required of Adam, the federal head of the human race, that he should turn his natural life into a spiritual life by obedience. That is, he was to have dominion over the life in the air and in the earth and in the sea. But he was not to have dominion over himself. God was to have dominion over him. And as he obeyed God, his natural life would be turned into a spiritual life. Adam represents what Jesus Christ represents, viz. the whole human race. And if Adam had obeyed and transformed his innocence into holiness by a series of moral choices, the transfiguration of the human race would have happened in due course. But Adam disobeyed and there entered into the disposition of sin, the disposition of self-realization. I am my own God. That's really what sin is. This disposition may work out in a hundred and one different ways, in uh, decorous morality or in, uh, um, in decorous immorality, but it has uh, the but it has one basis: my claim to my right to myself. That disposition was never in our Lord. Self-will, self-assertiveness, self-seeking were never in Him. When we become rightly related to God, we are not simply put back into the relationship Adam was in but in a relationship adam was never in we are put into the body of christ and then god does not shield us from any of the requirements of sons we have the notion at first that when we are saved and sanctified by god's supernatural grace he does not require us to do anything but it is only then that he begins to require anything of us and this is what peter has been alluding to as we've been going through that there is something that is required of us now that we're saved this holy life that we are being called to the conclusion well what we believe is true we can verify we can prove it but now the challenge is and this is the big question because it's true what difference is it going to make in your life and again, it demands a transformed life. And I don't think it's any secret or coincidence. Or is this part of the Holy Spirit's plan that we have this transfiguration event rec- recorded here alongside the statement of Peter of the truthfulness of all that we have recorded in the Gospels, all that the disciples proclaimed, and effectively all that we have in Scripture. Let's bow our hearts.
Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, please help us just to have complete confidence in your word, Lord, when we speak to others. Lord, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Lord, that which we believe, Lord, can be substantiated from an intellectual perspective. But Lord, it is far more than that because the real heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. And we pray, Father, Lord, for our own hearts, that we would let you do that work in us, that we would be subject to you. And Father, that you, by your grace, would allow us to grow in knowledge and in grace, to become more Christ-like. Those things we were looking at last week, work in us, we pray. And Father, for those in this world, Lord, who don't believe, give us the boldness and the confidence, Lord, to live out this life you've called us to live and let your light shine in us so that they would see the reality, the truth of what we believe, of what we've been called to. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.